Uh, today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. That's Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The the words of him who holds seven stars in his right hand, who, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you, ha- you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray as we begin. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes so that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid your servant now in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you, and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This is the last uh, series or sermon in the HUM series that we have. HUM, if you don't know, stands for holiness, unity, and maturity. These are three things that we pray for every Saturday when we gather together as a church. And this is the second part of maturity. Uh, It's sometimes not easy when we grow, Um, sometimes painful. I personally had this experience when I was a child. I experienced growing pains. Uh, One summer, my friends would say, in one summer, I went from looking at you like this to looking at you like this. Because in one summer, I grew uh, a few inches. My growing pains were a little extreme, so it was pretty bad that uh, I couldn't walk. So my legs hurt so much that I couldn't walk, and my dad would have to come and carry me back home a few times. Uh, Sometimes growing pains are painful. That's what growing pains are. However, when I look back now, I didn't notice, but it was because I was growing. After one summer, I had noticed, I did grow, I am taller. Um, And so in maturity, sometimes I would think that it could be painful sometimes, but perhaps it's because we need to grow. And so I wanna pose this rather difficult question as we begin today's message. And 
I'm going to answer it throughout the message, but uh, the question is, as Christians, as Christians, are we to be conservative or liberal? As Christians, are we to be conservative or liberal? And I have two answers. I'm going to give you the answers from the get-go. I have two answers for you to the question, as Christians, are we to be conservative or liberal? The first answer is yes, and the second answer is no. Okay? As Christians, are we to be conservative or liberal? The first answer is yes, the second answer is no. And so let's start today's Bible reading. This is very exciting. In fact, if you want to, I would encourage you to read along with me. And uh, let's go verse by verse in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. And in the very first verse, this is now Jesus Christ who is speaking and giving a message to the church in Ephesus. And this is what Jesus Christ himself says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Who is he telling? He's telling the apostle John, write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Angelos, which was translated as angel here. Angelos means messenger. But we know rather than a spiritual angel, they most likely meant a person. Because he's writing to a person And so it either meant to the bishop or the elder or the pastor. We don't think it was a messenger like Tychicus per se, who did deliver the letters like to the Ephesians and things like that. But why is Ephesus significant? Ephesus is quite significant because there is no other church that we know so much about in the Bible. There's no other church that we know so much about in the Bible. Paul went there. In Acts chapter 19, Gaius, um, Aristarchus, and then we hear stories about how they would go and people would listen to them. He would preach. At one point, it says Paul preached every day for two years. That's a lot of preaching. That's quite the challenge. And then because of that, all of Asia would know the word of God. He preached every day for two years. Why is it significant? Because after a while, after the preaching in this great city, this metropolis, this place of lots of trade and economic boom, people would see that the economy was changing. People would stop buying things like idols, little idols for Artemis. And a silversmith would come up, his name is Demetrius, and he would rally the whole city. He's like, look at what these Jesus guys are doing to our city, our economy, the way we live. And then people were angry. In fact, they brought them to the center of the city and they were trying to share, but they wouldn't even let them speak. Once they found out they were Jews, they wouldn't even let them speak. And it says in the Bible, for two hours, two hours, They were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine that? People were so upset that what was being preached and what was being taught is the word of God and people's lives were changing. The economy was shifting. You could see a palpable difference in the very places you are walking. And people were getting upset. 
I don't like what you're preaching. I don't like what you're teaching. I hate it. And instead of listening to them for reason, they would just shout, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, two hours until they couldn't do anything and they just had to send them away. Timothy later, we see Paul was there. Timothy later would go and be an elder of the church in Ephesus for a few years. And then we even see that the apostle John would go and be an elder of the church there. And you can imagine of the messages Jesus is now giving the church, John hears about Ephesus first. John hears about Ephesus first. And we went through Ephesus the past few weeks on unity and the first part of maturity. And I thought it was quite significant that we understand what we see here in the later portion of the New Testament. The churches are referred to as stars and lampstands. Why? Because the church is called to shine the light. The church is called to shine light. What is light? Light is a witness to the world of who Christ is. The church is called to shine the light, and light is a witness to the world of who Jesus Christ is. And this is what he says. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostle and are not, and found them to be False. There's a multifold commendation that Jesus is giving the church in Ephesus now that we need to pay attention to. It starts off with works, then it goes to toil, then it goes to patient endurance. It's multifold because it seems to me, if you keep on reading this, if you're following with me, just in verse 2, there is a rising description of his appreciation for the work. Work, deeds, toil, sweat. Patient endurance is even to the point of suffering. There is a zeal in the Ephesian church that is being acknowledged by Jesus. What is the zeal for? They cannot bear with those who are evil. And then you would be reminded of Psalm 139 who say, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And just as Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, they would test those that would claim to be apostles and they would find them to be false. Number three. If you read verse 3, and this is why I like the ESV, but I'll show you in a bit. In verse 3, he goes, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And if you look at the Greek, it is a mirror of verse 2. Enduring, so I know that you are enduring patiently is the same word as the end of verse 2, patient endurance. Bearing up is the same word used when it's mentioned in the previous verse, you cannot bear with those who are evil. So the same verbs are being used and now there's a mirror. So you see enduring patiently and the, very, uh, the verse before is patient endurance. Bearing up and you cannot bear with those who are evil. And even when we go to the part and not grown weary is the same word as toil. What's missing? What's missing in this mirror? Works. Works is missing. And he goes in verse 4, But I have this against you, 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is a heartbreaking verse because what happened is you have confused works with love. They are not the same. Wait, wait, wait. I thought Jesus said, those who love me will obey me. John 14, 15, right. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands or you will keep my commandments. But what happens if you abandon the love or that love for work alone? Can that work save you? Can there be work outside of love? And the answer is, of course. Of course there can be work outside of love. I can love my wife. I can wake up at 5 a.m. when she wakes up and I can say, I love you. And as she gets ready, I can make her coffee. I can kiss her goodbye as she leaves. And then at 10 a.m., I could text her and see how her morning commute was and if she started the day okay. And at 1 p.m., I could call her to see how her lunch was. And at 4 p.m., I could go to the flower shop, buy a bouquet of flowers, go shopping for dinner, start cooking at 5 p.m., get home before she gets home at 6, have dinner ready. As she does the dishes, I could take out the garbage and then we could get ready for bed. Does this mean that I love her, though? And Jesus goes, no. You've abandoned the love you had at first. In the beginning, I may have loved my wife. And because of my love for her, I created this schedule. And I followed something like that schedule so that I can show my love to her. But after a while, what can happen? Maybe it's just something that I had to do. Maybe it's just something that Christians do. These are the works that we do. And Jesus, who knows the heart of every single person, will be like, this is not love. Don't try to confuse me and yourself. But why would you do something like that then? Why would you even make a schedule? Why would you do all these works? And perhaps you did it to boast. Perhaps you did it to say, hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at what a great husband I am. But the Lord knows the heart. And he goes, no. And in verse 5, he goes, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Look how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. What kind of works? What kind of works? Works at first that were works of love and works in love. Not works of self-righteousness or any other kind of works. So number one, when we realize that maybe we are being zealous, we want the doctrine to be right, we want to follow everything that Jesus says, number one, remember then when the Lord gave you new life. Remember the heights of his love that covered you and gave you wind beneath you. Remember. Number two, repent. Turn back from your ways that you thought could save you. Your works is not God. Your current works cannot save you. So rather do the works of love. 
Do not do works that you think will merit your righteousness or your salvation. Meaning, don't do works to show off or to boast. And if you don't do this, Jesus says, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember we said that the lampstand is the church's witness of the light of Jesus Christ to the world? What is that witness characterized by? It's characterized by repentance. Did the church of Ephesus do this in the end? I think that was the question I had. Whoa, Jesus came and gave this insane, like crazy thing that they would have thought like, oh my goodness, we thought we were doing right. We thought we were being like this church that would, that would follow doctrine, following Bible. And Jesus goes, you don't love me. What did they do? Did they repent? And so it seems like that. There's a church father named Ignatius, and he would go on to write about how he would commend the church of Ephesus for its powerful witness and love for Christ. And this is uh, what he exactly writes. He goes, I, be I became acquainted through God with your much-beloved name, which you have obtained by your righteous nature according to faith and love in Christ Jesus our Savior. You are imitators of God. And having kindled your brotherly task by the blood of God, you completed it perfectly. And we'll come back to this as, uh, again. And we're going to go to verse 6. I'm going quickly through this so that we can really land on verse 7. But yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who were the Nicolaitans? There are many theories, and I'm going to tell you some of them, and I'm going to tell you why it doesn't matter, but I'm going to tell you some of them. Who are the Nicolaitans? It, there are many theories from the Nicolaitans being a sect because of the deacon Nicholas, who was also from Antioch. And remember Ignatius, the church father I was talking about, he was the bishop of Antioch. So anyway, there are many theories that one of the first deacons would start a sect and they were called the Nicolaitans because of Nicholas. But there was also the church father, Ignatius, who would eventually say, and you may have heard that, the church father, Ignatius, would say, no, 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 no. Nicholas was misunderstood. He was not a heretic. But there is also another theory that says there was a heretical group that would use the name of the deacon Nicholas to promote themselves. These three are all speculation. But what is certain is important. What is certain, though, is that Jesus hated their practice. And when we go down the chapter, the practice of the Nicolaitans were similar to the teaching or with the teaching of Balaam that taught idolatry and sexual immorality. These were the people that would say, your rules are too restrictive. You are too conservative. We are free. We are free. And then they would submit themselves to idolatry and porneia. Idolatry is to take things that are not God or to twist God's word and then not have his word or God in the end. Porneia, which is translated as sexual immorality, is acting out 
anything that is outside the confines of the institution of marriage that God instated in the beginning in Genesis. I'm going to say it again. Those two things are brought up from the teachings of the Nicolaitans and also the teachings of Balaam. Number one is idolatry. Idolatry is to take the things that are not God and to lift them up into a place where God should be or to take God's word and twist it and change it and then lift it up where God should be and that is not God. That is not his word. Pornea or sexual immorality is acting outside anything the confines or the confines of the institution of marriage that God has instated in the beginning of Genesis. These two things were being taught and practiced. You know, we we always think maybe the cities in the Bible are ancient, old. What does it have to do with us? I will contend with you that we are exactly like the place where the Ephesians are. We are in one or the other. We live in a society that struggles with this. Are you conservative or are you liberal? And the first answer I said was yes. Yes. Are we conservative or are we liberal? The first answer is yes. We must be liberal. Folks, I think most of you would consider yourselves in the conservative party, but I'm telling you, we must be liberal. To be liberal would be to free ourselves from traditions that would bind us and keep us from the truth. Why must we be liberal? To free ourselves from tomfoolery and traditions that would bind us and keep us from the truth. I gave this example a while back, and I remembered it while I was preparing this week that when uh, a missionary friend of mine went to a certain country, when they had communion, there was a table. As they prepared communion, they would take a cat and they would tie the cat around this, like in this corner, they would tie the cat every time they had communion. And so he would ask, this is interesting, why are you tying this cat? And the people in the church is like, I don't know. Why are we tying this cat? So like, you know, we should ask. So they started asking people. They went to the older person until they went to the oldest person. And then he said, you know, a long time ago when the missionaries first came and we had communion, we had cats that would run around and just kick up dust. So we needed to to tie these cats down. We put them in this corner so they wouldn't kick up dust. It's like, we're inside now. There is no dust. Why are you tying up cats? It's like, that's interesting. We have these traditions. So the question now is, Are you going to get rid of the cat tying? We like tying up cats, though. (laughs) You may laugh at that. You may laugh at that. But I'm saying we must be liberal. We must free ourselves from traditions that will bind us and keep us fully from the truth. Why? Why must we be liberal? Because we ought to bind ourselves to what is true and good. We free ourselves from the things that are unnecessary so that we can bind ourselves to what is good and what is true. That's conservatism. We need to be able to free ourselves from anything that is unsubstantiated tradition or tomfoolery, like I said, or foolishness so that we can submit and hold on to what is true and good. 
What's the point of being liberal if you cannot find something to attach yourself to? You are liberal, meaning you liberate yourself so that you can attach yourself to something. If you can't find anything to attach yourself to and just be like, I'm liberal, I'm liberal, I'm liberal, then you have no ground to stand on. You're basically just falling. And he's like, well, Pastor Eugene, I want to let you know, I want to be like the birds of the air and just fly. Nothing to hold me down. And I would say even birds need to land, need to land and rest. Where are you going to land? What's the point of being conservative if you are just blindly binding yourself to things that add weight to your back for no reason? For no reason. Why are we tying up cats? And you laugh at that, but there are a lot of things that we do that we don't understand. And if I asked you, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Why do you have this tradition? You might be like, hmm, I laughed at cats, but I don't know why we do this. Why are we doing this? What's the point of being conservative if you're blindly binding yourself to things that add weight to your back for absolutely no reason? So the answer is yes. But there is a more important answer. Should we ultimately be liberal or conservative? The answer is no. No. Because what is ultimate? Jesus gives us the answer. It's love. We cannot be either or even both for its own sake. Love would demand there is a higher standard that the world has. Why are you conservative or liberal in the world's eyes? If you stick to God's word and what he teaches, wouldn't it confuse the world? Just as Jesus' sayings confuse those that he spoke to. If you really stuck to what Jesus was saying... Wouldn't it confuse the world just as Jesus confused people when he spoke? Unless, unless the Spirit opens the ears. This is where we come full circle back to Isaiah chapter 6 where God told the prophet to say, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Sermon number 2 of holiness and people will say, Jesus was a liberal. He freed people from slavery. Other people will say, Jesus was a conservative. He truly followed the law. And I would say, why is that the point? Why are you using Jesus to submit to your political ideals? Rather, Jesus coming to earth shows us something incredibly important. Jesus shows us that only God can give you God. Only God can give you God. You cannot merit God by your own works or standards or ideas of conservatism or liberalism. Only God can give you God. This is why in verse 7 he goes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
So you might say, so I can't merit salvation by my works. I can't disregard the law and do whatever I want, right? I can't be like the Ephesians at first and just try to work my way to show off, look at me, look at all these things that I'm doing, and I can't just disregard the law and do whatever I want. And you might be asking, how then do I love Jesus? Because that's the only world I know. I only know merit by works, and I only know disregarding the law. How can I love Jesus? How do I live a life of repentance? My friends, we could not have earned or merited our salvation with our works. God created this world for a purpose, but we sinned. And we rebelled against his commands. We are debtors. And the Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. No one even seeks God on their own, let alone can they merit their salvation. We don't want God or anything to do with him. We are sinners and we cannot not sin. But there is one who did not sin. And he lived a perfect life and died the death we should have died. And if you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you what he merited. His perfect life becomes yours. This is when the sinner's eyes are opened and we finally see the depravity and the desperateness of our situation and we run to the cross screaming, I need a savior. And that's what Palm Sunday is about. We're waving these things saying, I need a savior. I cannot do this on my own. There's no more pride. There's no works that you can do that can amount to anything. It's a simple and desperate cry for a savior and God hears you and his mercy, he grabs you and gives you new life. And as you have breath in you for the first time and you breathe in, your heart starts to change. His desires become yours and the things that God delights in, you start delighting in. And your heart knows love because you start recognizing that Jesus loved you first. So is the law nullified? Absolutely not. In Romans chapter 3, the word of God says, not at all, when someone asks. So we don't need the law, right? But Paul says, rather, we uphold the law. Psalm 119 says, and it becomes the saved song. Psalm 119 becomes our song. Oh, how I love your law because we see that in the law it is a reflection of God's good character. But more importantly, that law points to Jesus. It points to our Savior. It points to what Jesus fulfilled here on earth. And now when we follow any of Jesus' commandments or the law, it's not to merit our salvation. It's already been given to us through Christ's merit. But when we follow and when we obey, meaning when we finally learn to mature and grow, 
In love, it's because we love Christ. It's because it points to Christ, and everything about Jesus just makes our heart overflow. And I love Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to obey him. So now for the follower, follower of Christ, their works are works of love and in love in response to the love they have been given. So yes, the answer to the question that I posed in the beginning is no. We are called to be people that love Christ, that takes priority over everything, everything. Not by works that we do or by the works that we don't do. It has nothing to do with us. And now what we do is we place our eyes on Christ. This is the week we call Passion Week. It's when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and we remember and we know that this is the week that he prepares himself for the cross on Good Friday. Historically, Christians have taken this Passion Week and taken time to reflect and to fast, but most importantly, to pray and to meditate on what is good. What is good? I had a brother come up to me and ask me, uh, is this show a good show to watch. Apparently there's a show out there that's pretty amazing, that's an epic show for the ages. I, 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 I don't know. I didn't watch it. Uh, however, the question that we pose naturally, and I'm, I'm trying to put an application here. The question that we pose naturally is, Pastor Gene, where's the line? When is it, is it okay to do this or is it not okay to do this? Is this okay? Is this not okay? But we've been given a better question. Is it good? Does it point to Christ? Can we meditate on it? As Christians, we are finally free to bind ourselves to what is really good. Finally love what we couldn't love before and give our all in our love for what is ultimately good. So this week, I urge you, in Christ, bind yourselves to what is good. Meditate on what is pure. And ask God to continue to work in you to be holy as he is holy. Let's pray.